I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify them. Mm. You know, I've often been asked why I don't light my attic with electricity. Ridiculous. Everybody knows electricity is for chairs. Our little fairy tale tonight is called The Thirteenth Guest. The 13 makes it timely, topical, and terrifying. It's about a humorous fellow who dies telling a joke. Something of a deadpan comedian. Here. Let me darken the room, and we shall commence. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. What you just heard was audio from a rather rare surviving element of the Vampira show. Before there was TV horror hosts like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and the hero of the last drive-in, Joe Bob Briggs, there was Myla Nermi's Vampira the glamour goal with an impossibly tiny waist and a scream that would make the undead swoon. In addition to being the original TV horror host, 
Vampira is also known for her appearance in Ed Wood's cult classic, Plan 9 from Outer Space. But what about the woman who portrayed the glamour ghoul? Myla Nermi is an endlessly fascinating figure, not only because of her contributions to the horror genre, but also due to her connection to the bohemian beatnik counterculture. Joining us to give us the scoop on all things Vampira is Myla Nermi's niece, Sandra Nini, author of the Feral House book, Glamour Gold, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampira, Myla Nermi. This conversation was previously thought to be lost, and I'm very, very happy to have been able to rediscover it for the Halloween season this year. So, without any further ado, let's get right into it with Sandra Nini, author of Glamour Gold, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampira, Myla Nermi. Welcome to Parallax Views, Sandra Nini, author of Glamour Ghoul, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampira, Myla Nermi. How are you doing today, Sandra? I'm doing very well, thank you. Now, I should mention first that you're the niece of Myla Nermi, known to many as Vampira. I guess where I want to start is for my younger listeners. I'm, I'm sure they have seen the image of Vampira, uh, you know, maybe through the Ed Wood movie or maybe through Plan 9 from Outer Space. Uh, but beyond the image of Vampira, how would you sum up the character. Who is Vampira? And then the second part of that question would be, who is Myla Nermi? But let, let's deal with, who was the character of Vampira beyond the iconic image? You mean uh, her personality, how she animated the uh, character? Yeah, wh what was the character all about? What was the character meant to represent uh, in the time period that uh, uh, that she created it? Well, initially, <clears throat> she was she had an interview at KABC in Los Angeles, and they wanted her to recreate um, Charles Adams' character, who was unnamed at the time, and later in the Adams family became named Morticia, because that is the costume that she wore to the Bal Carib. She went as the mute uh, Morticia, and then when she found out that. Uh, they only wanted to hire, the station only wanted to hire her and forget the other characters, Amila said, well, I can't possibly do it then because that would be ripping off Charles Adams, but I can make the character different. And the station manager, Hunt Stromberg, gave her four days to do it, and Vampira was born. So now she had to figure out a way to animate the character to give her a voice. And uh, so she was not only beautiful and sexy, but she was 
powerful and in control at all times. And uh, she was, I don't know, she was uh, mysterious and uh, believed in all kinds of bizarre things. Like uh, someone asked her once, what do you think of children? And she said, oh, delicious. You know, things to shock the pragmatic era that she was living in at the time. She wanted to stand out and be outrageous. And she did that quite well. I think the other aspect that people may miss, uh, beyond just the, the sort of sexiness of the character, there's sort of this sharp witness. And in addition to that shockingness, there's almost this, I don't know, almost like anti-suburban, maybe like anti-bourgeois element, I think, oh. uh, to the character. <laughs> so interesting that you mentioned that. Because Myla learned, she loved the word bourgeois. She learned that word when she was, she was briefly in college in Forest Grove, Oregon, <clears throat> as a youngster. But she heard the girls in the dormitory saying bourgeois, and she wanted to know what that was. And then she found out, well, they were all looking for a husband with lots of money so they could get married and have children and, you know, fry pork chops for dinner every night. And Myla said from that point on, the bourgeois life was just foreign to her. This was, she was the anti-bourgeois person. She did not want to get married and have children and cook and clean and, you know, kowtow to her husband, which women did in the 50s. But, uh, so, she was the antithesis of, uh, the bourgeois woman, the, the 1950s woman that most women were. And she had an imperious attitude when she um, stalked on the, you know, across the stage and down the corridor when she opened her show. Uh, and she was fearless. <clears throat> and she was <clears throat> patterned from the evil queen in Snow White that Myla became enamored with at the age of 15, the first time she saw the movie. And... Um, also, the uh, uh, Theta Bera and uh, the woman in um, uh, Sunset Boulevard in 1951. I know it's William Holden and Gloria Swanson. The character of Gloria Swanson, Vampira, was part Gloria Swanson, part Theta Bera, part Evil Queen, and part Myla Normie. I think another interesting aspect of this character is that, you know, as this horror host that is often even hosting movies that aren't necessarily horror, a lot of these are uh, mystery movies that they sort of shoot in uh, and they add at the commercials with uh, Vampira sort of leading you through the films. I think what's really interesting about this character and we've seen this with other horror hosts. Uh, there's one in Ohio, uh, Goulardi, that also kind of did this. There was a lot of pushing of the envelope. And uh, there's almost like a, a rebellious aspect to the character. We mentioned the anti-bourgeois aspect. But maybe we could talk about some of the ways that this character really pushed the envelope for what was acceptable at the time. How she pushed the envelope? <clears throat> well... Uh, for one thing, 
uh, she opened every show walking down uh, a corridor through the miasma of dry ice, and then she would stop in front of the in front of the camera and let out a blood curdling scream, and then like a kitten would sort of smile and and uh, say, "Oh, screaming relaxes me so." And what she was doing, in effect, was uh, simulating a, an orgasm on national, not national, Los Angeles live television every night, every Saturday night, and the censors missed it, and they allowed her to continue. But that's what she was doing. That's outrageous and very courageous. Um, so, and and the things that she talked about, she had a great writer. His name was Peter Robinson, and she loved this writer. She said he was just fantastic. Occasionally, he allowed her to write her own uh, script, but most of it was uh, done by Peter Robinson. But she would say things like, you know, it's always, uh, I'm selling now to you the Yellow Cross plan, and you buy it in case you have an unsuccessful suicide. There's nothing more sad than an unsuccessful suicide. And so, you know, people were watching this in the time of the Eisenhower administration going, what is this? You know, not only is this creature not even look human with this 17-inch waist, but, you know, these boomerang arched black eyebrows, and she's talking about unsuccessful suicides and guillotines and, you know, stabbings and murder and mayhem. And people didn't understand that. It was bizarre, but they couldn't look away. The show became an instant hit. And within three weeks, I think, of the show debuting only in the Los Angeles area, uh, they sent, Life Magazine sent a reporter photographer to do a story on Vampira and then she went she went nationwide. I think what's really interesting too is the sort of just overt sexuality of the character. And I mean this is in the fifties and she's wearing this dress that really uh it it shows off uh how do I put it? Uh her her bosom. Um and not only is she an extremely sort of sexual character in an era where one wouldn't expect that, but she's also a very strong character. I know a lot of people know the character of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and we'll talk about that later. But I always found it interesting, the Elvira character that comes around in the 80s uh, sort of has this, uh, I don't know if there's a nice way to put it, but almost like this bimbo type vibe to her whereas vampira is very mysterious and enigmatic and there's a sort of sharpness of wit and an intelligence to her a strength that i don't think we see in a lot of other uh female horror hosts later on uh yes that's how i'm glad you use the word bimbo because that's exactly what I think of the Elvira character. She was a bimbo. And uh, Myla explained her like she should be a stripper in an Elks Club. 
that was how she came across to Myla. And uh, Myla was more untouchable. And uh, her vampira was untouchable and, like I said, imperious and powerful and sex- sexy. Uh, uh, the only difference between Elvira and uh, Vampira, according to Myla, was the beehive hairdo and a lower cut and a bigger bosom. She said, other than that, it's Vampira in appearance, but not in personality. Now, if you could, uh, for my listeners, when this character appears in the 1950s in the greater Los Angeles area, it sort of takes the nation by storm in a way. She becomes known outside of the Los Angeles area, and I think she even inspires uh, the TV station to try to do similar characters to Vampyra, but not hosting horror movies, hosting romance movies. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just how big her influence was when this fir- uh, show first started? Oh, it was... <clears throat> it, the show just took off. And Milo was uh, married. She had a common-law husband named Dean Reisner. The family called him Dink all the time. They had a six-and-a-half-year relationship. And when Vampira came on to the national scene, he just wouldn't have anything to do with her. He was embarrassed. He said, the character is beneath you, Myla. Uh, you know, I'm not going to escort you to any of these parties you're, inv- you're invited to. You know, I'm just, you know, this thing is just, you know, it's terrible. I don't want to be associated with it. He later came to say, had I known I, that I had thrown a million dollars down the toilet, but uh, at the time it caused uh, trouble in their in their relationship. But um, anyway, you were asking. I lost my train of thought. What, what was, I was the question? I was asking. What are the examples that we see early on in the run of the vampire character that show just how influential? Uh, this character and her show was in the 1950s? Well, Myla said that in 1953, she went all out and made uh, popcorn balls and cookies and decorated her house for Halloween and inside and out, and she didn't have one trick-or-treater. And the next year in 1954, she was Halloween, and she was invited to all of these parties. In fact, Jaja Gabor's maid called Myla up and asked her to give her the details of how to put the makeup on because Jaja wanted to be Vampira for Halloween. And she wasn't the only celebrity who wanted to be Vampira. Vampira was everywhere. Um, suddenly she was in, t- in TV Guide, not only uh, Life magazine, which had, I don't know how many readers they had, but uh, millions. And then TV Guide, of course, was national, and several other magazines, and pretty soon she was really in demand. And there was even talk of her going to the East Coast to perform in New York City, but she turned that down because, well, she had cats, and she didn't want to leave her cats, um, believe it or not. Um, So she turned that down and continued... Um, doing things in the Los Angeles area like 
opening a new jail and doing grocery store outlets and uh, uh, the college. She was the, the, the sweetheart of something. I can't remember the name of the uh, fraternity. Um, but she, all of that for $59.60 a week wasn't much money. And she was very busy. After taxes, $59.60. And my understanding, too, and I did not know this until I read the book, is that she actually inspired the station to try to make these sort of knockoff uh, hosts of movies. Um, I think it was called uh, The Chills and... Yeah, The Thrill and Chill Girls. Yeah, tell tell my listeners about that. uh, Gloria Paul was the actress that they hired. She was six, six, six feet tall, and they called her the Eiffel Tower. And so she did uh, a take um, where she would dress in provocative negligees and lounge uh, uh, on a chase lounge and uh, pretend she was talking to a lover on the phone that I can't wait to see you. Please come over, darling, and things like that. I'm waiting for you. I never saw the show. I'm just remembering what Myla wrote about it. And um, then uh, they would show romance movies instead of horror movies. And then they would come back for an interlude with Gloria Paul or Voluptua. So there was Vampira and Voluptua. And she only lasted about six weeks because the housewives didn't like her. Uh, her show, I think, was on at either 9 o'clock at night when families were still gathered around their television set, uh, children, and here was Voluptua, you know, with her sexy voice and her sexy clothes, lounging around inviting her lover to come see her. So that was, that got the axe right away. Myla never liked that. She, you know, she didn't want that kind of competition. Um, even though she and Gloria were friends, uh, she didn't want Voluptua to be on air. And it was, I think, on the Wednesday night, something like that. So there was only Vampira after that. What do you think it was about the Vampira character that resonated so much in, I mean, 1950s? I mean, to me, I look at the Vampira character, and honestly, I see a character that's actually ahead of its time. I mean, uh, she sort of uh, precedes uh, the sort of liberatory movements of the 60s. She is sort of the liberated female archetype that we see more of in the 60s and 70s. But in the 50s, do you think that she was almost capturing the zeitgeist before it became a thing? I certainly do. She was the pioneer. She started the whole revolution, if you want to think of it that way. The powerful woman, the woman who is in control, the woman who didn't uh, cook and clean, but was there in her own world to command what she wanted and do it intelligently. She was a very smart woman, and she, of course, had uh, Peter Robinson, who was such a good writer giving her the scripts and uh yeah she was the pioneer of 
I guess. I never thought about it that way of the 60s. You know, the free love and, you know, everything changed then. And uh, Vampyra was long gone by then, but I don't know. The essence of who she was lingered on. Started people thinking. You have to remember that uh, when Myla came on the screen, uh, Lucy Arnaz and Desi Arnaz, Lucy, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who were married, couldn't even be filmed in the same bed, even though they were legitimately legally married. And so, like I said, times were very pragmatic and very, you know, sedate. And here comes Vampira, 17-inch waist, low plunging neckline, tattered dress, and walks onto stage and you know, gives out her blood-curdling scream and talks about all kinds of outrageous things that people may have thought of but never spoke out loud. Milo was fearless. And I think, too, it's interesting. You said uh, a lot of housewives may not have liked Voluptua. Uh, Vampira, on the other hand, it sounds like she had a lot of female fans. I mean, even uh, someone who was initially uh, not a fan of Myla Nermi, but was eventually a fan of Vampira, is Mae West. So why do you think there were so many women that were big fans? And maybe we can yeah. get into the Mae West story. And Shelley Winters, too. I did um, not know that. I love Shelley yeah, Winters. Yeah, Shelley Winters was a big fan, too. I, I, you know, I don't... And Lucille Ball was a fan, because I have a letter that Lucille Ball wrote to my Aunt Myla that I found in her apartment after she died telling her how much she enjoyed her show. You know, there, Myla was non-threatening. She wasn't threatening to take your man. She was just who she was. In fact, she didn't want your man. She was an independent woman. And so I think that's why housewives didn't feel threatened by her and uh, continued to watch and be her fan. And she was funny, you know. She talked about things, you know, tongue-in-cheek. People knew it wasn't serious. But, uh, you know, at the time when Myla, when Vampira was speaking those words, she was deadly serious or seemed to be. Uh, so, no, there was no threat. And one thing I should mention is the dress itself that she wore is a plunging neckline. When she wore it initially, that she had, she had made the dress herself, and she played the character of Morticia, she had a high neckline and a low back. And so when she had to sex up the character and invent or create Vampira, she turned the dress around so that the back was in the front and vice versa. And that's why if you look very closely, you will see there's a zipper in the front right underneath the bodice there. And that's because the dress originally was the other way around. So I want to get more into Myla Nermi outside of Vampira. But first, we, we have to ask the question, how did she achieve that look? I mean, she's known for this hourglass frame, the waist. How did she achieve the waist? Wow. Well, when she was very, very young, 19, she and her friend decided to go to New York City to get on Broadway. And halfway there, they escaped from the bus just west of Chicago, 
when they met a man who was in a traveling carnival and invited the girls because he said they were so beautiful and they could make $10 a day working in the carnival. So the girls took off and went and worked at the carnival for a couple of days. But they slept in the girls' tent or the girls, wherever the girls collected or slept. And uh, she met the mermaid girl who talked about this rubber costume that she had to wear, and she liked it because she never had to dye it. She would sweat inside this rubber costume, and it would just sweat out, you know, anything that she ate, and she stayed thin. So when Mila was uh, trying to make her waist smaller, and she was doing this because she wanted to be, and she eventually was, a cheesecake model and became a cover girl on men's magazines. Nothing as risque as we have now. Um, the, the women were completely covered in bikinis and, you know, not even revealing bikinis, but that was considered cheesecake. So she was trying to make her waist smaller, so she discovered that if she um, rubbed, um, gosh, what is it that she, it's, you can get it in a health food store, uh, meat tenderizer. So she would uh, slather meat tenderizer mixed with cold cream around her waist, and then she remembered the rubber of the of the mermaid girl, and she got an inner tube and cut it into pieces and then wrapped swabs of rubber around her waist as tightly as she could, and she says it ate away her flesh. Now, it's hard to say that didn't happen because her waist got so incredibly tiny. Um, but that's how she did it. She she slept with rubber tire around her, and her husband hated it, of course. He says, you're not going to sleep with that crap on you again. And she said, well, of course I am. Uh, you know, it's helping my waist shrink. And, in fact, apparently it did. And then she also wore a patent leather belt around her waist and cinched that in as hard as she could. She also, every night, or every Saturday night before her show, she would take a Finnish sauna, uh, steam bath, and not eat for two days so she could fit into her vampire costume. Otherwise, she couldn't fit into it. It was so tight. Yeah, and I think this also gets into... Milo is an extremely creative and, I would say, tenacious uh, person. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, her first experience uh, going into uh, the TV station and introducing the Vampira character and how she sort of blew the socks off everyone. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Hunt Stromberg had given her four days to come up with a different character. And so she was incredibly busy, you can imagine. You know, she had to even make fingernails, you know, those long daggers that she wore on the ends of her fingers and paint them hemorrhage red. And, you know, you couldn't go to the drugstore and buy fake fingernails in those days. So she had to create her own. It was a very long process. But uh, her husband drove her to KABC in full costume 
And uh, she says, do I look all right? And he says, well, yeah. It helps if you're drunk. You know, if you've had enough to drink, you you look pretty good. She says, oh, are you telling me you have to be drunk to enjoy me? And he says, no, but it sure doesn't hurt. And she was insulted by that, um, that her husband was making a joke of something that had taken her four hard-working days to create. So she walked into Hunt Stromberg's office, if you can imagine, looking exactly like Vampira with the wig and the arched eyebrows. She was very good at putting on makeup, very good at it. And uh, the plunging neckline and the tall shoes and the cinched-in waist, no bigger around than a 45 record. Can you imagine that? And uh, then she pulled out of her um, bosom a cigarette holder, long cigarette holder, and she asked him for a cigarette and a light. And apparently he almost, you know, fell out of his chair. Uh, He was going for it, I mean, and he became obsessed with the character. He wanted to own Vampyra. He took her in to see the higher-ups as soon as he decided, oh, this gal, is this is what we've been looking for. And it was just right then and there, that day, they prepared a, a contract for her. And so she was hired right then and there, and she started going on uh, appearances to publicize the coming show. Now, what's really interesting about all of this is... Vampyra is like the dark goddess of television at this time. But let's peel back uh, from the character of Vampyra to the person behind Vampyra. Myla Nurmi herself, she actually comes from very humble beginnings uh, that are very different than the sort of enigmatic glamour ghoul vampira what what is the sort of background of the real myla nermi the woman behind vampira you mean her her childhood her parents her her childhood and maybe uh her humble beginnings okay uh her mother and father married in 1918 myla was born in 1922 my father was 17 months older there were just the two of them and uh, Myla was, uh, according to her, a very shy and obedient child. Her father was um, an editor of Finnish newspapers and was a leader amongst all of the Finnish immigrants across the United States. Wherever there was an enclave of Finns, he went there and spoke to them because he was also an orator and called himself the man of 10,000 speeches. And uh, he despised alcohol. He was always preaching about giving up alcohol because the Finns were known to be drunks. And he never touched a drop. He hated alcohol and what it was doing to the Finns. And yet his wife, Myla's mother, was an alcoholic. And he couldn't stop the booze from being in his own home while he preached away the evils and the sins of alcohol. So this is what Myla grew up in. Uh, when the, in 1934, her her father Undi had lost his job, and they moved to um, Duluth, Minnesota, and they almost perished. 
that winter there was no money, there was no food, uh, there was no heat. Uh, and Milo was certain she was going to either starve or freeze to death. But uh, they did survive that winter, and then someone from their former home in Ashtabula, Ohio, offered him a job and offered him money to move back to Ashtabula, and they resettled there, and he started up a Finnish school for uh, Finnish immigrants where they could learn the English language and they could study history and science and math and um, that sort of thing. And Myla and my father were um, also going to school there, and in fact, they even went to a summer school uh, where they had to learn words. I remember Myla said we had to find 25 words every day and learn the meaning, and then Father would drill us on it, and we better have it right. Uh, and so... I don't know. Myla got into sewing. It was the only domestic chore that she really wanted to learn and was interested in, and she became very good seamstress. Uh, and, uh, you know, she was different growing up. She wanted to be, she wanted to live a glamorous, rich life. Could I interrupt? A, yes. I, I wanted to say that I like that you brought that up. She wanted to live a, a glamorous, rich life because I feel like what really comes through in this book and the difference between Myla and maybe the life that her parents wanted and what they expected of her is that Myla has this unquenchable thirst for freedom. She is ultimately... Uh, a, a bohemian, and I, I would say, you know, kind of a beatnik. Uh, and I, I think that there's a really telling part in the story. She dreams a lot of going to Hollywood and sort of escaping the confinement of the lifestyle her family wants for her. And she has a really interesting conversation uh, with her mother concerning Orson Welles. Could you relate that specific story? Oh, sure. Yeah, Milo was interested in art and freedom, and in fact, she was a bohemian, and in fact, when the beatniks were out, she was. She was a beatnik. I remember my mother saying, your Aunt Milo's a beatnik, as I, when I was a little kid, saying that. I didn't know what a beatnik was. But anyway, she had an interesting conversation with her mother. She was home alone with her mother, and she was in the bathtub. And her mother was sitting in the living room, this little apartment, drinking wine and listening to the radio. And Orson Welles was on the radio giving some sort of a monologue, or how he did, I guess. And all of a sudden, Myla got out of the tub and raced into the living room and said, Who is that man? Who is that voice, that wonderful voice? He's a genius. And her mother said, Well, of course he's a genius. That's Orson Welles. And Myla says, well, I'm going to go to Hollywood, and I'm going to become friends with Orson, and it will be lovely. I'm going to be a monologist, just like him. And her mother said, oh, don't be, don't talk like that. You're just simply Myla Nemi, Myla Nemi in those days, Myla Nemi, who works in a fish cannery in Astoria, Oregon. If you continue talking like that, people will think that you're crazy. And, uh... She did go to Hollywood, and she did meet Orson Welles. So, 
There you go. She had the dream, and she achieved it. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what was her relationship with Orson Welles like? I, I don't want to spoil everything in the book, but I think this is a really interesting story. And it doesn't just end with the book. There's some revelations that uh, occurred during your writing of this. Yeah, so what would you like to know about Orson? They had a relationship um, that lasted a couple of months. He, uh, she met him at Musso and Frank's. She was celebrating uh, a friend's birthday, and it was the friend who decided to go to Musso and Frank's to see, I don't know, Errol Flynn or some actor that she was just certain was in the bar at that very moment drinking, and she had to meet him. This was uh, during the war. And so to get into the, into the bar, they grabbed a soldier off the street and asked him to escort them in. And Myla had never been in a bar unescorted before or even escorted. She just had never been in a bar. She was underage. She was 20. And they were served, and then she heard the voice. She heard that magical, marvelous voice, and she looked over her shoulder, and in the back there was Orson Welles with three other people. And she flew out of her chair, and she says, I ran over to him, and like a crazed peahen, started telling him about how much I loved his voice, and I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be a monologist and how exciting she was. You know, Mar Orson was literally her god. And uh, so then when she went back to her table, the soldier and her friend had disappeared. So she was by herself. And shortly thereafter, apparently Orson's friends had left. So he came over to her table. And uh, they started talking and... The, the night came to an end, and she didn't have any money for a cab. You know, they were very, very poor in those days. And so he offered to have her driven, and he jumped in the cab with her because he said, well, how else will I find out where you live? And she was living at the Commodore Hotel at the time. And the next day, there was a big bouquet of flowers for her, and it was signed Mr. Wilson, not Mr. Wells. Well, I since found out after I wrote the book that I, Mr. Wilson was one of his agents. He had a Wilson agent, and so he was signing his agent's name, and uh, Myla figured that out, that it was from Orson Welles, and they started a relationship. In 1943, it would have been. Perhaps the end, yeah, 19, yeah. Maybe it was, yeah, it was 1943, probably this summer. <clears throat> anyway, she was very young, 20 years old. She hadn't had her 21st birthday yet. Do you want me to continue? Well, or what will I, that... I, I wanted to get into something very scandalous happens uh, w between Orson and Myla. Uh, they have this relationship. And I guess they have a kid, and I don't know if it was after you wrote the book, uh, but you were actually able to find this uh, this son. Maybe you could tell that story. Okay, I always knew Myla had a baby. 
I knew I had a first cousin somewhere. We have a very, very tiny family. And uh, I always wanted to know who he was, but, you know, I figured, well, he's 75 years old. Maybe he went to Vietnam and never came back. You know, who knows if he's even alive? And how do you find him after, you know, in the pre uh, computer days. It was impossible. I didn't know his name. I didn't know who adopted him. I only knew his birth date and um, that he was born in New York. That's all I knew. And so on November 19th, 2019, I come home and my daughter is here and she says, I know who Myla's son is. I know his name. I know where he lives and I know his phone number. And I said, get out of here. This isn't funny. No way. This is a joke. It wasn't. I was on the phone in minutes. And he was on the other, you know, he answered the phone right away. And I was like nine-tenths done with the book. It had taken me 12 years because of tons of self-doubt. And so... I, he said, do you know who my mother and father are? Because I know we're first cousins. And I said, well, I know who your mother is for sure. And according to your mother, I can tell you who your, who your dad is. And I said, you are talking to the only person in the entire world who is just finishing up a book of your mother's life. And he said, really? I said, yes. This is so bizarre. And he's, and I told him who his mother was, and he said, oh, my God, I've waited 75 years to know who my mother is. And then I find out she's a vampire, and I just cracked up. And then I told him about his father, and he said, oh, this is just, this is just too much. Every adoptee wants to know who their parents are. And most of us go, well, what if they're famous and you know, it never happens. But it happened. I don't know what to say. And as it turns out, he lives in Vermont. He was a noted attorney for 50 years. He was even the assistant attorney general of the state of Vermont in his youth and tried many, many cases, including murder cases. He was a trial attorney. And he even went to Zambia when... Uh, Zambia was uh, needing a new constitution to become, I can't remember the name of it, it's not Zambia anymore, but the United States government sent David, that's his name, to Zambia to write their new uh, constitution. So that worked out really well. I've never met David yet, but we are going to meet as soon as COVID is over. And he has a lovely wife and a home, no children, but a lovely wife and home and two two dogs and a cat in Vermont. They live in a tiny, tiny burg in Vermont, and they're retired now. So it's my first cousin, and it's been established through DNA. That's how we found ourselves. Uh, found ourselves. My, I bought my daughter a DNA kit for Christmas one year, Ancestry.com. She sent it in. And David sent one in, and that's how they got matched up. In regards to, and I want to, I'm glad you could tell that story because it really is an amazing story. Isn't that though? Oh. And what's interesting to me is, I think 
that relationship with Orson Welles, which of course ends with a horrible betrayal. I mean, Orson yeah. was not there uh, yeah. for Mila when she had this child. Uh, what do you think the effect of that was on Mila Nermi uh, in the long run? Well, I don't think she ever forgot that betrayal. You know, after when she was pregnant and expecting and living with her parents in New York City, uh, Brooklyn, uh, she was a big fan of movie magazines, and of course she couldn't even look at those because she was afraid that she would see pictures of him and his wife, and uh, she didn't want her father, who was very, very um, stuffed shirt and conservative, to know that her the, the baby's father was a married man and that he was very famous. She kept that from her father. And I think at that point she hadn't even told her mother who the father was. But uh, she went on with her life. It killed her to give that little boy up. She named him Cal, K-A-L, so she could speak to him whenever she wanted to through, through life. But <clears throat> she went on to various jobs. She eventually got a job on, uh, she was in a Broadway play, uh, Catherine was great. With and, Mae West. <laughs> uh, with Mae West, and Mae West had her fired. And Mae West later on became a fan of Vampira, not knowing she was the handmaiden from her Broadway show that she had fired, who became Vampira. But that's another story. But Myla, I don't know, maybe that's why she... She was mistrustful of so many people in her life. Her life became black and white with very little gray. And if she didn't like you or got angry at you, even if you were a close friend, she would completely erase you from her life and there was no chance of getting back with rare exceptions. But uh, she had a touch of paranoia. And she had a, she had a, uh, she would have meltdowns where she just was crying uncontrollably and yelling and screaming and angry uh, throughout her life. So I don't know if that was some kind of a mental condition. I don't know. Somebody asked me once if she was bipolar, and you know, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. I didn't see anything like that. Uh, well, with the exception of yelling at my daughter, but I didn't see anything when it was just she, uh, her and I talking. I didn't see any uh, problems at all. We just had a blast. But Mila was distrustful of people, and that could have been why because early on with Orson, because uh, betrayal cut deep. And uh, you have to remember, uh, there was a very uh, tough time for Myla from 1955, January, April of 1955, through uh, January of 1956, 57. This happened all at once. She lost... Dean Reisner, their marriage crumbled, and then she lost her job, Vampira, and then she lost James Dean, the man that uh, she loved. It was a platonic, strictly platonic relationship. She thought of him as the son she had to give away, and she figured that she was, he was, she was his mother who had died when he was nine. 
So it was that mother-son type of relationship that they had. Uh, so Dean died, and then she went to New York and fought off an attacker and was almost killed. And then she came back to Hollywood and found out that she was the cover girl of Whisper Magazine, accusing her of putting a hex on James Dean, resulting in his death, which completely destroyed her. Because that was, she loved him with all her heart. To her her last breath, she loved Jimmy. And to have that splashed across the headlines on the cover that she murdered him was, she contemplated suicide seriously after that. And then her mother died. So all of that happened in just two years. And it was a terrible time for her, as you can well imagine. Now, for me, what's really interesting is you mentioned the experience with Orson Welles, the experience with Mae West. Maybe that created some distrust. I think another aspect of Myla is... She's sort of a free spirit. She's someone that refuses to be tamed, and she is someone with this bursting creativity. And I think that all coalesces into a perfect storm that, in a way, I think she becomes very aware of. There's one point in the book that made me really smile, and I felt I could really relate to it, where I think she was saying, or was quoted as saying, you know, I, I gravitate and like the neurotics. Uh, the yeah. people like John Carradine, and I'm a huge John Carradine fan, so when I read that, I was like, yes! Uh, and Lawrence <laughs> Turney, who I'm also a big fan, and I was like, yes! Uh, it seemed like she gravitated towards, you yeah. know, she called them the neurotics, but maybe yeah. like the people that were seen as like outsiders or eccentric or characters, and she sort of embraced being the rebel. Could you talk a little bit about her rebel spirit and maybe uh, even her time at a place called uh, Googie's. I was going to say it was uh, it shared a wall with Schwab's Drugstore, which is, you know, historically everyone knows about Schwab's Drugstore, where all the rich and famous went to get their medicine and to, you know, be seen. And Googie's was built right next door in probably about 52, I would say. And uh, there was a rivalry going between the two places, Myla said, the Schwabieros and the Googieites. And she, of course, gravitated to Googies because that's where all the rabble-rousers were, the discontents, the, mis the miscreants and uh, the misfits. And the people that just didn't quite fit in, the free spirits, those were the ones who hung out at Googie's, and those were Myla's people. That's who she felt comfortable with. And James Dean, for one, he was just like she was, and that's where they met. And uh, eventually, that's where she met Anthony Perkins, although he didn't quite fit in. He was more conservative, but uh, they spent time there, too. Uh, and then... Uh, she, in later life, you know, she gravitated toward the punks. She found a home with the punks. She felt comfortable with the punks, with their, you know, green mohawks and, you know, the misfits and uh, the Ramones and all of those people. She that's That was her home. That's who she, she even liked. collaborated with the misfits on something, right? Yes, yeah, she did. She did. 
Yeah, that was the last time she ever wore a, uh, her vampire costume in 1981 when um, she was living in her unheated warehouse, like she said. She didn't have any heat. I'm, I'm, I have to say, when Elvira was earning millions and millions and millions of dollars, Mila didn't even have electricity. That still burns me up. Anyway, she was sitting in her uh, empty warehouse with her dog, and there was a door, and above the door was a window uh, transom. And all of a sudden, one of the Ramones with the, I don't know what kind of hairdo that is, where the, the dreadlock comes down your forehead and, you know, comes down to the tip of your nose. Anyway, uh, here's this face up in the window, and any other senior citizen woman would have screamed and at the nearest opportunity called the police, but Myla, oh, well, there's there's someone like me, huh, and they left, a, she didn't answer the door, they could see her sitting in there, not answering them, but they left a note under her door saying uh, who they were, the misfits, and that they were going to be at this record shop and uh, they would be delighted if she would join them the next day. And she did, and she was all decked out as Vampira. And she had a fabulous time with them. So, and she also did monologues at a at a punk bar, uh, and she had a gig there. They paid her. Every Thursday night she would go in there and do a monologue for the punks that were there amidst all the marijuana smoke and the excruciatingly loud music, the screaming and the yelling. She was at home with that. She was in her 60s. She is even, and I did not realize this until I read the book, she actually provided the lead vocals for a (laughs) punk band called Satan's Cheerleaders. I have that record. Yeah, and in the background, then you know how she got the words or the lyrics that she says is, The band was just walking down Hollywood Boulevard and saw a discarded piece of paper on the sidewalk and picked it up. And there was uh, apparently a a sidewalk preacher had been preaching something, the gospel, and had dropped the paper. And they picked it up. So it was all biblical stuff, you know. And they said, well, you know, maybe we can use this someday. And then they met Myla. And they asked her one time, would she just kind of say these words while they play music in the background and make a record? She said, sure, I'll do it. And they did it in one take. And you can hear Myla in the background, and I'm thinking, you learned all of this from your father, my grandfather. Onni Sirianyami is standing up there from the masses preaching the gospel and the evils of um, alcohol. And she did a marvelous job. She sounded like a fire and brimstone preacher. It was wonderful. You know what else amazes me? Uh, in these later years, she also finds herself somehow as a receptionist at an oh. S&M dungeon. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Audrey Antley, who was Mistress Stephanie. When I first met Audrey, she was going by Mistress Stephanie. I went to Los Angeles and met with her. We're friends now. But, yeah, she's the one that gave me the story that Mila was the receptionist at a, what is it, I don't even know, is it S&M type of thing? And uh, there were 
four or five rooms that you could rent, and Milo was allowed to decorate one or two of the rooms. And she was very happy because Milo liked that kind of thing. And she was especially uh, proud of her tapestry stool that she made, whatever that means. But, yeah, her job was to take a bus and go to work at, uh, I can't remember the hours. It was four hours a day because Mila was, you know, almost 70 then. And uh, she was paid very well. Uh, I think she was paid $250 a week. And uh, she loved it. And so she would answer the phone when the clients would call up, and then she would call the girls, okay, it's time to wake up and come to work, because uh, Mistress Stephanie said her girls are beautiful, but they're lazy. They party all night, and so they sleep late. So that was part of Mila's duties, too. And then some of the clients came in there in various stages of undress, and Mila just ignored them because that's who Mila was. I, I love the part where uh, one of the clients comes in uh, in like a maid outfit, uh, you know, as part yeah. of his play with uh, his mistress. And yes. uh, Mila is just like, well, you know, I just sort of acted like it was, you know, all yeah. just a normal day. <laughs> I just worked here. He had no underpants on and the dress was very short. And then when he had to bend over into the refrigerator as Mila was getting a soft drink, well, there he was. And Myla, well, you know, I just work here. She had seen it all before anyway, so it was nothing new to her. But it wasn't even shocking, you know. It was just like, okay, this is what my friend Stephanie does for a living. Before and, we go on? <laughs> no, go ahead. Before we close out, I just had one or two more things I wanted to hit on. Uh, first, no conversation about Vampira would be complete without mention of her relationship uh, with Ed Wood and her involvement in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think we have a very romantic picture of Ed Wood based on the Tim Burton movie. But I think when you really look at it, Ed Wood was sort of a, um, he was a sleazy operator. He was what? Uh, a sleazy operator of sorts. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Myla had met him at, uh, uh, originally at a birthday party for Bela Lagosi's son when he was just a child. And uh, Edward was there, and she knew him by reputation, and she said he was a very pretty, pretty man, but very... Not so much strange as repulsive, you know. He just was sleazy. And, uh, you know, I knew that I never wanted to work for him, but then times got very tough for her. And she had like $7 to her name, and here comes Marco Polo to Marco something, I don't remember. Paul Marco. Paul Marco, thank you, not Marco Polo. (laughs) Paul Marco comes to the door. And he has $201 bills with him. And he said, Eddie wants you to be in this movie, Grave Robbers from Outer Space. That was the original name. And Myla said, oh, no, 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 no. I need money, but I don't need money that bad. Uh, no, I'm not going to work for Eddie. And he says, 200 smackaroonies. And he took it out and he threw it on the coffee table. 
And she looked at that pile of ones, and boy, she really needed it. And she said, oh, okay, I'll do it. Anyway, so he leaves and comes to the time that she's going to be doing the filming, and she's dressed in vampire, you know, head to toe, as you see her in the film. And she's with a man, then her, her lover, and his name was Charles Beatles. And they get on the bus together. So you saw that in the film. You know, they're in the Ed Wood film. They really are on the bus. And she's in full vampire costume. And her boyfriend, Chuck Beatles, is kind of a, well, he's got a nasty mouth. And he's a smart aleck. He's a lot younger than Myla. And uh, anyway, they get to the studio. And he carries her off the bus because her dress was so snug she couldn't make those steps. And they go into the studio, and uh, she asks Edward that day, uh, Hey, Ed, would you mind if I just stay mute and just just play the part mute? I don't want to say these words. And he says, Ah, oh, sure, honey. Uh, I just want your name anyway. So she didn't have to say anything. Is this before or after Edward... Uh... Or, or Edward's uh, sort of stock players had tried to tell uh, Myla, we need everyone to get baptized because uh, the producer is like a religious oh, that person. Was, yeah, this was this was after. This was uh, this is when she was starting to film that day. She, it was, and it didn't take her one day. She was there two days, according to her diary that I have from 1956. It was filmed the end of November 1956. If anybody wants to know, those are the exact dates like November 19th and 20th of 1956. But, yes, he, uh, she found out from Chriswell that uh, Ed Wood said, well, you know, we've got this minister that, you know, he'll give us some money to make this film, but we all have to be baptized. And that's when Myla blew a fit because she had already been baptized and her name was in the, what is it, that thing that they bury in a church, time capsule, in the Peace Lutheran Church, and she said, if he makes me get baptized, I will sue him. She did not get baptized in real life. The movie showed that she was, but she was not. Now, before we uh, wrap up, since we're in the home stretch of this conversation, you know, it's interesting to me, I think that Plan 9 from Outer Space is obviously become Vampira's sort of most iconic uh, film role. Uh, But what's what's interesting to me, uh, first off, I don't don't know that Myla Nurmi expected that, but, you know, I I think all's well to ends well. She probably, uh, you know, was able to sell T-shirts and and have sort of a bit of a revival because of it. But the film that actually I think sums up Myla Nurmi the best, for me it's her most iconic role – is a very odd and obscure little film called The Beat Generation, where she plays a character simply called the Poetess. And I think that character sums up Myla Nurmi and what's really going on beneath the surface of the Vampira character. I think Vampira and Myla Nurmi are both uh, subversive rebels. Well, you're very insightful because Myla wrote those words to the poem. And that's who Milo was. That's exactly who she was. That was Milo Normi, the poetess, at that time, what, 1959, 1960? 
that's who she was. So you look at those words, if you can find the, the words of that, what she said. You know, the movie only showed partly, but there's a longer version of the poem. And it's who she was. She was in her beatnik days, you know. She wasn't dressed like a beatnik there, but she was a beatnik. And it, it's such a great scene that she has in that movie, too, because she's sort of railing against, you know, the ho-drum and the, the boredom of the, uh, yeah, you know, bourgeois yeah. life. And I'm like, oh, my God, the, this is my the life. Ennui, yeah, yeah. Ennui. But I love how she's cradling that white rat because Mila loved animals, and that's also in there. That's important. You know, the white rat on her shoulder that she's yeah. caressing. Yeah. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah, you know, um, if you could real quick, and then I, I do promise to let you go because I know we've hit the hour mark. Uh, there was one story I just wanted you to tell since we were talking earlier about James Dean and Vampira. There's a story involving a billboard. Maybe you can yeah. relate that real quick because I, I think, again, that really shows the sort of creative spirit and rebel nature, nature yeah. of Myla Nurmi. Well, there was um, the skeleton of... Uh, of um, a billboard, there was uh, the white the white paper and in a frame, you know how that is. But there was no advertising on it, so it was like a movie screen. There were floodlights on it. There was just this blank white uh, uh, place. And so, <clears throat> at the time, it was just before Rebel Without a Cause was filmed, and uh, James Dean was really wanting. Jack Simmons to play the part of Plato, but Jack Simmons had severe stage fright, and so James Dean was trying to get him to limber up and be real and, you know, get the part. <clears throat> and so they were out riding around in Jack's hearse, he had a hearse, and they saw spotted this billboard, and I don't know whose idea it was, and they said, let's climb up there, it was two stories. And there must have been a ladder or a way to access this billboard because they had decided that the three of them would go up there and Milo would pretend to be attacked by Jack Simmons. And Jimmy would come to her rescue. And so they went up there and they had lights on them. It was on Sunset Boulevard, which is very busy all the time. And they went up there and they reenacted uh, Myla walking and screaming and Jack, you know, starting to strangle her and her beating him off with her hands and here comes Jimmy from the side and he beats Jack up and Myla runs off and then they're laughing hysterically and they climb down the ladder and they jump in their car and they go back to Googie's. But that's the kind of stuff that they pulled. It was They were the night watch, the three of them. Uh, other people have claimed to be part of the night watch. They never were. It was Jack... James Dean and Myla Normy. They had fun. Well, Sandra, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views, and I want to give you a chance to let listeners know how they can purchase a copy of Glamour Goal, available now from Feral House. But I, I want to say, too, um, just my closing thoughts here, and uh, you can give yours as well. Uh, for me, what I love about this book is you know, we were talking about her her love and friendship with James Dean, and I always think about that movie, Rebel Without a Cause. I feel like Myla Nermi was a rebel with a cause. Uh, she was going to prove to the world 
that she could spread her wings and fly and she was going to be free and she was going to be a free spirit and she was going to succeed. And she didn't always succeed in the ways one would expect, but I mean, she has left a legacy. She was a trailblazer, a punk, uh, a goth, a beatnik. She's everything rolled up into one, a counterculture icon. And I find her inspiring. And I think she will continue to inspire people for generations to come. Well, thank you so much. Myla would be so happy to hear that. That's exactly who she was. And uh, right now I am fighting to get a star for her on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I want her to be memorialized on the streets of the city that she loved for decades. And I think she deserves a star. And so we're working on it right now. I would love to see that star and anyone who goes to Hollywood, go to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Um, her plot at the cemetery, first off, it's beautiful. Uh, just that the tribute to her there. And when you go there, you can still see people leave little plastic bats and, you know, uh, toy fangs. I mean, the love is still there for Vampire yeah. and Myla Nermy. She has a beautiful spot. I was so happy with the spot that she got right on the edge, at least it was the last time I was there, right on the edge overlooking the water with the swans. Uh, and there's peacocks that roam freely through there and geese. Myla was hugely passionate about animals, all animals. It didn't matter from the snails that she tried to protect by relocating them to different places where they couldn't be poisoned to, you know, monkeys. She had a friend, a little monkey named uh, Shalimar that she loved and dogs and cats and, you know, she loved them all. That was her passion. She loved animals more than people, except for Jimmy Dean. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, if you want to buy the book, it's Glamour Ghoul, and it's available on Amazon. It's sold out twice now. It only came out um, on the 19th of January, but for some reason it's been sold out. I don't know why. They're getting more in, I think, on the 12th of February, and there may be some, you know, through Target. There is some in Walmart and Barnes & Noble and Goodreads. There, It's all over the place. So it's available. I may say that uh, Myla tried three times that I know of seriously to write her own autobiography because she wanted the world to know her story, but it always fell apart. And finally, she just ran out of time. So that's why I did it, because I was the only one left she had. I had to do it. But uh, she originally was going to name her autobiography How to Dig Your Own Grave with Your Teeth because she knew sometimes she was her own worst enemy. Like when she ripped up her cost, her contract to Howard Hawks, uh, who was going to make her the next Lauren Bacall. So, you know, Milo was aware. She was a free spirit. She couldn't help it. She always would be. Uh, and she didn't want a traditional lifestyle that would boring. It's, she didn't understand. Her friend Dana, Dana Gould one time said to her, Myla, I sometimes feel so bad for you. You should be living up in the valley with, you know, making dinner for your grandchildren. She said, oh, that's a horrible life. 
No, I'm much happier where I am here, living in the slums. Doesn't she and... even note at one point the difference between her and her brother being that she's more of the bohemian? Oh, yes. That's why they weren't close at all. They never saw each other after their mother passed away in 1957. And the only other contact they ever had with each other from that time was when their father died in 1962. He called Myla and told her. And then we think in 1972, we be- I, my father wasn't home. I was with my mother at home, and the phone rang, and my mother's, I remember only hearing my mother's side of the conversation, and she finally said, Myla, is this you? Where are you? And Myla hung up. And I right away, Myla, Myla, because I'd been trying for years to find her. Are you sure that was Myla? She said she asked for Bobby, and she's the only one that calls your father Bobby. And I went, oh, my God. And, uh, of course, we couldn't um, find out where it came from, or she never called back. My father died in 1977, and Myla did not know for 12 years until I told her in 1989. And uh, it's not that I didn't try to find Myla. I even uh, enlisted the help of the Red Cross to find her, but they couldn't find her in Hollywood either. She was being uh, recluse at the time. So I finally told her in 1989. But my father was everything that she didn't want. My father was a manager of organ aid producers for 25 years. He and my mother built a little tiny house that we lived in in the country in the 50s and the 60s. And my dad and mom both got up and went to work every day and came home and made dinner. We had a traditional life. And that was everything Myla despised. And she thought that their mother favored my father. And that was kind of a thorn in her side, too. So they weren't close. And my father wanted to be close with his sister, but she wouldn't have anything to do with us at all. So she did it her way. Well, it's like that Frank Sinatra song, My Way. I want to thank you again, Sandra Nimi, for coming on. Parallax Views, and I wish you luck getting that star for Vampira, she certainly deserves it. She does. And I've enjoyed this this talk very much. You ask great questions. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sandra Nimi, and that you'll check out her book, Glamour Goal, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampira, Myla Nurmi. It was a great honor to speak with Sandra, and many thanks to Christina Ward at Feral House for helping to put this interview together. My apologies, it came out so late, but... Better late than never, this is a piece of history that we're talking about. Sandra had some amazing stories to tell and insights to share about Myla Nurmi, who I think is sort of like a feminist icon, a goth icon, and a beatnik icon, all rolled up into one. What a woman, and a great figure to honor this spooky season. 
As always, if you enjoy or appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax... You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween. <laughs>